Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Trevor. And together, we're We're Occasionally Interesting, interesting. the podcast where a couple travels the world interviewing the most interesting people they meet along the way. Sometimes it will be sweet. Often entertaining. Rarely conservative. Frequently informative. Occasionally occasionally interesting. interesting. To the wise, kids. You recording? Yeah. Word to the rise. Word, 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 word. (laughs) Word, word to the wise, kids. It's very smart to say word to the rise when you're talking about a sourdough starter, though. Word to the rise, kids. <laughs> Feed your sourdough starter every day, and it will grow healthy and strong. We're bringing back hashtag Trevor Bakes Bread. It's been a minute. Now joined by hashtag Trevor plays ukulele. So today on the podcast, we have the wonderful, incredible, incomparable Aaron Rash. He has majorly impacted our lives since meeting him and this podcast was such a delight to to do and now to just go through and edit it again and get to have the conversation again he he shares so much awesome wisdom and um he's given us in particular um a presence technique I don't know. You'll have to listen to it. But it's a, 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 a technique for when your mind starts playing anxiety mind movies, when your head starts spinning out. He's given us a very useful tool to immediately bring ourselves into the present and interrupt those movies. And we've both used it constantly since we first had this conversation in February. And um, yeah, he has a really interesting story. He's just wonderful to listen to. He's such a calm, wonderful speaking voice absolutely uh something that we've discussed since the podcast amongst ourselves is these mind movies and i believe he makes the statement you'll know better than me having just really listened to it that these mind movies are always bad is this correct is this correct uh he definitely did not use the word bad but um something to be something to be interrupted mastered mastered that's good um and 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 this was sort of upsetting to me because I, I sort of, you know, for at least some of the part, like my mind movies, they're, they can be entertaining as well as uh, bad. Um, and, and I was wondering if, 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 if being in a mind movie means not being present, is it, is it always bad? And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Eric? <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> in addition to just Eric, if you are listening to this podcast... Head on over to, how, how should they get in contact with us? Occasionallyinteresting.com or at occasionallyinteresting on Instagram. We would love to hear your thoughts. It would mean the world to us. That means you. Yes, you. Listener. You. you yeah, yeah, you. You. Should we say anything about like what he does or more about him? More highlights of this? Or just leave it there? Yeah, throw in some highlights. I don't remember the interview quite well enough. I remember that we talked a lot about some really good books that we've since read um, or are currently reading that uh, definitely recommendations from past guests that we stand by having now read them. It was a pretty incredible moment in our lives. I quote Richard Bach all the time, as our podcast listeners know, um, and I do this throughout my regular daily life interacting with humans, just not just on the podcast. No one has ever known who Richard Pockets basically. I mean, a couple people might be like, oh, is that the Seagull guy? Yeah. But I said this quote, did not attribute it to an author, and Aaron was like, that sounds like a Richard Bach quote, and then proceeded <laughs> to have this amazing... It was a beautiful uh, moment. Yeah. Especially, you probably by now realize how much we adore Richard Bach. 
to have it called out from us. It's, it's a special gift. Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, Aaron has a really interesting story. He's American. He moved to China when he was really young. Opened the first um, Mandarin Mandarin language school in his province of China that he was in. Um, and he has a background in healthcare, biochem. Uh, now he works with startups in the med tech field. Um, and I don't know, man. It's really hard to describe him because he's he is so nuanced and so in, in not in one box at all. Have a great time listening to this wonderful episode with Aaron. Bye. start with you i mean you're you are one of the most interesting people we've come across in our lives and you have so many different things making you interesting like it's amazing i definitely want to um hear your story again of your time at the retreat in peru with the book um but also yeah your background your yeah why don't we start with like a tldr elevator (laughs) who are you in a nutshell um Who are we speaking to right now? Yeah, okay. So my name's Aaron Resch. Um, I grew up in Colorado a long time ago. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I had a bit of a tumultuous start, ended up getting degrees in biochemistry, uh, moved to Asia, spent 10 years in China, um, built and sold a couple of businesses, one in education and one in clinical site management and clinical research for big global cancer studies um, and I spent about 15 years working in um, clinical and healthcare uh, data companies which I started and sold and exited my last one a couple of years ago and uh, I'm semi-retired and kind of floating around I'm in Asia right now training Muay Thai which has been a lifelong passion of mine martial arts in general and mentoring a few startups and doing a little bit of consulting here on the side and Wandering the earth, like Cain from Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, guys, so biochemical engineering? Is that- biochemistry. Biochemistry. Yeah, biochemistry. I started out as a lab monkey. Um, How did you make the leap from that to education? Was that the progression? Yeah, yeah. So the next thing was a, a Mandarin language school. So uh, I, I got out of school, and <clears throat> I had spent some time abroad already. I had been deeply involved with anthropology for a while. Uh, which I ended up not pursuing as a career because I did not want to be an adjunct instructor at a community college in <laughs> Garden City, Kansas, which is probably the most likely thing that's going to happen to you with a PhD in anthropology. Um, but I got the bug at that point, and I got out of school, and I had a job at the USDA uh, Southern Research Center in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I just did not want to be a micropipette operator for the rest of my life. As much as I loved what was happening in the tubes, once you kind of figure out your system of how you're going to do bench work um, in a in a biochem or an ochem lab in a, in a wet lab, it becomes very tedious and uh, yeah, just wasn't what I wanted to do. So 
I got online and started looking for jobs abroad. I was interested in China. China seemed like it was booming. I'd taken a semester of Mandarin in college. And uh, I set out my resume, and the, later that day, uh, I got an offer, and two weeks later, I was, I was in China. I got recruited by a pharmaceutical company uh, in a city mm-hmm. called Shijiazhuang, which is in Hebei, which is one of the, the province that surrounds Beijing in the way that uh, Virginia and Maryland surround D.C., um, and I got there and it was a complete shit show, total disaster. They were not in any way qualified to, uh, hire foreigners. They didn't have the right paperwork. It was a big mess. My visa was a mess. Everything was a mess. And, uh, I could either kind of go home with my tail between my legs or dig in and, and do something. So I dug in and a, a big goal for me in moving to China was to learn Mandarin. I wanted to learn it fluently. Um, I had picked up some Swahili doing my field work, felt like I had a bit of a talent for language, and I wanted to uh, wanted to learn Mandarin, but there was no Mandarin school in my city. So I started one. Wow. And, yeah, and that was my first business. And that was a Kangnol <laughs> Culture Exchange, uh, which is still in operation. Um, and we grew to be the largest uh, privately owned Mandarin language institute in the region. We had over 300 students a year at the time of acquisition. And uh, that was a great and cool experience. Um, and I learned Chinese pretty well. Nice. It was nice uh, having, you know, 30 Chinese teachers on staff that I could grab whenever, whenever I wanted one. That helped a lot. Uh, Chinese takes work. You're not going to learn it on a bar stool. Um, you got to get your flashcards and do the work and just do it. So, yeah, well, that's how I got into education. What started the interest in Mandarin? Why did you take it in college? Like, where did this I interest in China cool. come from? Yeah, I just thought it was cool. You know, like I thought it looked cool. I didn't know anything about it, right? Yeah. Like, it looked cool, you know? Like, I liked kung fu movies, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I had gotten into martial arts at that point. I started doing that when I was, like, 18 or 19. Um, so, yeah, it just seemed cool. And, you know, everybody was talking about China, and it was the next big thing, and it was booming and emerging. You know, this is 2004. Um, and I was in China, really, at, in, in my opinion, one of the best times to be there. I was there before and during everything changed, during, during the big change, you know, the big leap where, you know, the standard of living for the average Chinese person went up, you know, a factor of 10 or 15x. I mean, it was it was stunning, the scope of, of what they did to pull up the average quality of life for, for, for all the citizens. I mean, it's it's amazing. There's There's no one in China that doesn't have, you know, food, water, electricity, plumbing, access no to at least, I would say, almost no one. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's not a huge swath of China where you don't have basic utilities yeah. or education or health care. Um, there's at least your basic, um, you know, necessities are met. Right. Yeah. For, for almost everyone. And in a country with that population of that geographic size, it's pretty impressive that they were able to do that. And that's that's the other side of the sword of central control. Right. Mm. Yes. We're all very, very keenly aware of the bad side of it, but there's another side too, just Absolutely. like everything else, right? How did that change your experience, like on a day-to-day life or your view of China? Or yeah, all? you know, it, it wasn't a static thing, I would say. I mean, I was there for 10 years. Gradual. Yeah, so it, it gradually shifted, and we had what we used to call the, the, the Lawai. So Lawai means like foreigner, right? Like Lawai, Lawai. It's not exactly a bad word. Right, it's not like Guaylo. Like Farang here. Or? Yeah, like Farang. Right, it's not super nice, but it's not necessarily an insult either. Mm-hmm. It depends on the kind of ignorance level of the person you're talking to. Mm-hmm. You know, 
when an old guy says it, that's just the word he knows, right? Mm -hmm. If a young kid says it and spits, well, he's meaning something else, right? <laughs> uh, I'm a connoisseur of bad words for, uh, for, <laughs> for people like me. I know many in many different languages. Um, yeah, so we call it the, the, the Lawai cycle of funk. You know, and you're, you kind of go up and down. I think anybody who lives abroad, spends significant time abroad, especially in, you know, emerging or, or developing countries or countries that are very, very different, has this cycle where you just run out of patience. The little things start to build up. You go through periods where you're fine and you could stand in line and the spitting and the lying and none of that bothers you. And then you go through phases where it's like, you know, the next one of these people that spits on the ground in front of me, you know, is going to catch a flying elbow, right? Like you just can't take it anymore. You need a break, right? But I think it goes up and down and your your perspective is colored by your emotions, right? Mm -hmm. Always. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's something we all try to overcome, but it's very much a part of it, you know? So my my ideas and opinions about Chinese culture and the government and all that, probably as much as I may not have been aware of it at the time, probably was pretty lockstep with where I was in the cycle of funk, mm -hmm. you know, and how personally frustrated and irritated and wrapped up in my own head I was. Do you feel like any of their cultural concepts have rubbed off on you? Like the, Absolutely. the lack of, the lack of uh, concept of personal space is the thing that's most interesting. A different to... concept of personal space. A different, yeah? a different. I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be anthropologically correct. Like... I'll put my cultural relativism uh, <laughs> armband on. Yes, thank you. And, and, and police us that way. This is, um, it, it does seem like the most logical, efficient way to evolve in a in a country with so many people to just be like you know very efficient about it and not. Yeah, you know, population density is a massive driver of culture yeah. right? and culture change in the way that you do and, and think things, right? It's not the end-all be-all, as you can see if you go to someplace like Shanghai or Beijing, which has incredibly high population density, and then you go to, you know, Delhi or something, which has a similar population density, and you think, yep, population density is the devil. That's why everybody's a rude jerk, mm -hmm. right? But then you go to, you know, Hong Kong or Singapore, which has even greater population density in some parts, and it's not like that at all. Yeah. So it's definitely a factor. It's not the end-all, be-all. Um, my tolerance for and awareness of my own issues with personal space and hygiene and making noise when you eat and all that stuff definitely changes everywhere I go because it's different. Mm -hmm. You know, when I lived in, you know, I used to live in a hut in Tanzania, and, you know, it's really, really common for someone to just put their hands right in your food while you're eating it. And that was quite difficult for me in the beginning, right? But you get used to it, yeah? No Chinese person ever did that, right? Uh, but your tolerance for things, your acceptance of things changes. And I think the great gift you get from that, if you can stand back a little bit, is awareness of your own, your own automatic responses, your own concepts, right? Your own ideas. Learning other cultures and being immersed in other cultures exposes your own. Yeah. And that's one of the greatest gifts that you get from it. You know, what was what was one concept from growing up in America that you didn't realize was a cultural concept, like that you thought was just something innate to being human, and then you had you examined it differently. That being close to your family makes you weak or somehow unsuccessful. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> this is an American concept. Yeah, I think it is. Being close to your family makes you unsuccessful. So we have independence training. Yeah. So in in the West in general and very much so in the United States and, and probably the UK and France as well. We have this really strong independence training. So we train our kids to go out and go away and do everything on their own and be away, mm -hmm. right? Like, what would you think about your parents living with you right now? How would you react to that? Would that sound great to you or not so great? 
I mean, I we would want that. We'd be. I think we'd both be cool with them being on our property in a separate house. Yeah, but like you know, living in the next bedroom. That for the rest of your life. Not okay at all. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if you meet someone and like, yeah, I'm 42 and I live with my dad. Oh yeah. What do you think of them? You're a loser. Yeah. There's a problem there, right? It wouldn't even occur to you that maybe this dude. He's taking, taking care, care of his, of his dad. dad. Yeah. Right? Let's like, see. that's not where our mind goes at all. Right. right? The first thing we think is, okay, basement troll, how's that neck beard coming along? <laughs> yeah. Right? Absolutely. Even that, and we have nothing, no basis for that, right? We had no information to jump to that conclusion, but we do. And so that kind of exposes this perception that there's something wrong with you if you rely on your family for things. Like, so what if your parents take care of you when you're older? Like, who cares? Why does that necessarily make you bad, right? This is very interesting. This is definitely making me feel things as you're saying <laughs> this. That's like hard to accept. That is really Yeah, so good. this is cultural relativism, right? And having those assumptions that you're not even aware of exposed is like one of the greatest gifts for living abroad and, and going and getting in the trenches and squatting on the corner and eating the melon seeds and, you know, drinking the baijo and having people spit on your shoes, right? <laughs> Like there's, it's the, you pay a high price, but you get something really beautiful from it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my my concept of family, and you know, the idea of you know living with them or spending more time with them or helping them and then helping me definitely changed a lot. And that's one of the greatest things that I got from Chinese culture, is that reverence for the entity that is family. Right. You know, I very very independent, just like most Americans. Um, you know, left home at an early age lived away in a different states you know different countries for my family for you know, almost all my adult life yeah. and I mean when I think back when I was 19 or 20 like I mean every cell in my body would have railed against the idea of like living with my parents like are you fucking crazy yeah you know I mean it just sounds like a death sentence like what a nightmare or even living with my sister or my brother right like no way um but after I came back from China all of those people lived with me at one point or another uh in my house when I came back and it was awesome and uh, I, I miss them all dearly. So my respect Aww. for that relationship changed a lot, right? Um, you know, you have this kind of ancestral piety in Confucianist societies, right? Which is, you know, the sort of ancestor worship idea, which that's probably too much for me to cope with. But that reverence, I think the, the core idea there being reverence for the relationships you have with your family is is pretty cool. I mean... You know, when you think about it, these are literally the people that the universe said, you, 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 you're on the same team, <laughs> right? There's a reason. There's a reason you picked them or they picked you to be your family, right? It's not always clear to us, but I believe there's a reason for it. That's interesting. I think, because I mean, I think, especially like as I don't have, I don't have any kids, so I can only speak to what it's like to, you know, I don't, I don't think that. I necessarily pick my parents. I love my parents. I have great parents, but like, you know, there's, there's people who didn't necessarily have great parents. And like, I don't think that you necessarily owe them anything. If, if they didn't fulfill their obligations as a parental figure, you know, just because as like, out of some sort of cosmic fate, it happened to go, you, you, them, you know, them, you, you, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, not 100%. I mean, we were just reading a book this morning, and one of the quotes, I'm not going to get it word for word, but is all of the people and events in your life are here because you've drawn them to you. What you do with them is up to you. Like, there are no there are no mistakes. It's all 
It's that all sounds like a Richard Bach quote. It is. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Like, I recognize that. That's yeah. amazing. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm very impressed. <laughs> Yes, he's not one of my favorite authors. Yeah, he's mine as he's, well. He's my number well, one favorite well. author. Yeah. I have multiple copies of Illusions in my bag right now because it's one of the books that I give to people. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's We've Same. been looking for copies to give. There's several people that yeah. we <laughs> have yeah. been trying to get a copy for. We can't find one in Thailand. Yeah. But we found a PDF now that we've just been sharing to people. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. Wow, that's amazing. I, I don't think yeah. he would mind. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think <laughs> I he think would he mind one bit. I think he cares more about his ideas getting out there. Yeah. Yeah, this Definitely. is – I. Uh, that's so interesting that you say that we it's amazing to be able to talk to somebody who knows who Richard Bach is we, we really haven't come across anybody ever I know. Other, than, really? other than people who we've introduced him to now like a couple of our friends have read his books but um, it's so different having somebody with their own background um, and being like you know I think I think maybe one of the craziest things that I believe is yeah uh, uh, like that we Trevor and I are very close iterations of Richard and Leslie of like if you've read one Mm -hmm. that it's all about yeah we are one but there's different levels of um being close to that same space time or whatever it is and being like I feel like we're like one away I mean like (laughs) I feel exactly I am Leslie there is no person in this world who I would rather have a conversation with than her of just being like when I I hear her words. I'm like, that is my, that is the highest wisdom version of me speaking to me right now. Like it is, we have the, the, like the craziest cosmic connection and it is continually terrifying how much Trevor is like Richard. (laughs) It offers me, yeah, it offers (laughs) me a lot of insight, but because Richard's able to speak his, uh, his self a bit more clearly than Trevor is. Certainly. (laughs) We're rereading a bridge across forever at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, very much illusions in Bridge Cross Forever. He's still sort of finding himself in, 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 in infancy in his journey. Um, yeah, that's very, very fascinating to to listen to somebody who's so brilliant with his words. Be like, oh my god, <laughs> I feel so seen, <laughs> and not always in the best way. But it is what it is. Ah, that's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How did you first find? Richard and um, has 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 have your few uh, what's the other one you don't want you don't want a million answers as much as you want a few forever questions yeah. and like hold them up in the same light and they will show you whatever different things <laughs> I'm so so good at quoting have your have you f- your few forever questions and like rereading his books throughout time has it like totally have you gotten totally different things out yeah, of yeah absolutely absolutely um I read illusions when i was 10 years old or something the first time i found it on my dad's bookshelf nice. yeah um and i mean i i remembered it my whole life right yeah. even even as like a little kid who i mean maybe understood one percent of it right i don't know i bet you understood more than you give yourself credit for i, I don't know right I, I i i got what it from i needed i got from it what i needed to get from it at that time yeah. right for sure like every other book um but yeah i mean i remembered it and have like looked for it periodically throughout the years and gone back and read it many times and yeah I always get something more and different from it and you know I used to not to go off on too much of a tangent but and I may have said this to you guys before you know I used to read lots and lots and lots and lots of books right I wanted to read every book you know I mean I read hundreds and maybe thousands of books right Um, two or three at a time reading 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 I wanted to expose myself to every idea Right, uh, 
think about every angle, challenge myself in whatever way that I could. And I remember reading in um, uh, Letters from a Stoic, yeah, by Seneca. Uh, and Stoicism has been a huge in, influence in my life. And I remember he has a, one of the letters that he's writing. He talks about, you know, don't read a million books. You know, don't be like a butterfly flitting from flower to flower. Have five or six that you read over and over and over and really, truly understand them. And the first time I read that, I just rejected it utterly. Uh-huh. I mean, I, it, it upset me. I mean, I remember reading. I was sitting on a plane. I think I was going from San Francisco to Denver or something. And I remember reading that line. I was just like, fuck you, Seneca. <laughs> like, I don't even know if you're my boy anymore. You know, like, that's some bullshit. Um, I mean, I hate it. I mean, I just hated it, right? I've, I've learned now to be very, very aware of that feeling. You yeah. know, when I feel that utter rejection of something come up, that's something I need to explore. Yeah. yeah? Why, am I, why am I so against this why is this creating such a reaction inside me Absolutely. right um but I, i've come back and maybe it's because i'm older or whatever but I, I agree with that more and more and more and you know i i would disagree a little bit that illusions was written while bach was in his infancy it's written for a different audience mm-hmm. and you know if you look at kind of the the core of his corpus right you know jonathan living Siegel, illusions cross forever one right you will be the character all the characters in those books on this merry-go-round throughout your life absolutely you will be all of them over and over again yes right and sometimes you really are going to be richard again right whenever you think that you're not richard from illusions anymore you are <laughs> right <laughs> you're never cured of being human right it's it's a it's a fatal disease with no cure right but you can recover right <laughs> you can be in recovery from being a human being um but there is no cure so yeah i i i do that i think now more so than than i ever have I and mean, i always i like to keep one or two new things as people like i meet people like you guys and you recommend a book to me and sometimes i make it into my my core core set of books but i really just have a few that really speak to me Mm-hmm. And I keep getting something different from them, or I come back to them later in my life, and I get something different. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Richard Bach, good stuff. Mm. I would definitely are, say he's are, my core. core books. Yeah. At the um, a lot of them I picked up in Peru. Um, Illusions is one of them. The Four Agreements by Don Miguel that's, Ruiz. We liter- we, that's what we bought each other as our Christmas present to yeah. each other. Should read it to each other. Yeah, that's the plan. We haven't start- started because now we got distracted. But I felt a calling. I that I really needed to read The Bridge Across Forever again right now before we get married. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good one. I love the line from there. I, I, I'm not going to quote it exactly because I don't, I don't have it memorized. But it's something like, you know, I, I'm not here because this was meant to be or because you're my soulmate, or because God put us together, I'm here because there's literally no other soul in the universe that I'd rather be with. I'm here because I want to be here. Yeah. I think you read that line this morning, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like brick in the face. Yeah. I mean, that was that, that's a brick in the face one for me when I read that, right? You know, as you have this, there's this association, right, of something really strong and powerful and beautiful that in order to experience that or be part of it, you have to give up agency in your own life, right? And, you know, surrendering to what is, is not the same thing as giving up agency in your own life. And I know that I personally have made that mistake before. What's the, how would you differentiate? So surrendering to what is means accepting what it is, uh-huh. right? Giving up agency in your life means it doesn't matter what I say, do, or think. That part is true, mm-hmm. but I'm just going to do nothing and react, right? 
I'm not going to go after what I want. I'm not going to say yes. I'm not going to say no. Right. And just float. Mm. And I think that's giving up agency in your own life. And that's very much not the same as surrendering to reality as it is around you. Right. I think it's a very important distinction. Yeah. Um, We were also talking earlier today about reactionaries and and what it, about whole separate other conversation i want to go on a tangent that probably i'll edit out of the podcast i, I would really like to share with you our wedding invitations because i think you'll really appreciate them okay uh it's all it's based on so, i mean i'd say the theme of our wedding other than like love is books um so yeah all of our decorations are like quotes from books that we love and our the invitation is all um is a book This is the story of two balloons on the quest for immortality. They wander the world together, experiencing and creating magic, stories, and love. They are gallivanting along the bridge across forever, adventuring for joy, dancing for magic, eating for glee, choosing challenges, triumphs, impossible odds, testing themselves over and over again, and learning love. Their quest is enriched by their families and delighted by the marvelous creatures they meet along the way. This is the story of two balloons. Together, their direction is up. Oh, that's great. That's the back cover. That's really beautiful, guys. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No. Yeah, so that whole thing, yeah, this, this, it's basically a merge of The Bridge Across Forever and Jitterbug Perfume. Like, these these stories, this whole, yeah, this whole thing. So you should definitely check out uh, Jitterbug Perfume. Is it, is, it a, is it Bridge Across Forever where he talks about too often one balloon's pulling the other down? Yeah. So my favorite quote, love quote of all time that I read, like, at least once a month since I was... 20 when i first read bridge across forever is from bridge across forever about uh two two balloons do you remember this at all i've just i think i do i think it's been a while the gist of it being like uh you know your soulmate when like together your direction when you're two balloons and together your direction is up so often one half of a couple is pulling down while the other is going up for every two steps forward they take three steps back and yeah when you when you share your deepest sense of longing and it's up then that's how you know you found your person. That's beautiful. <laughs> and for the record, when I when I said he was in his infancy and illusion, I was more referring to his journey through love rather than uh, he yeah. himself. You know, he's he's very much searching and kind of lost in that regard. And he missed, he was kind of, like, yeah, he was he was always wise. Yes, Trevor Trevor's absolutely. always been wise. <laughs> right. but yeah, certainly when it comes to like all of these things of I think Richard really struggles with the. Yeah, surrendering of like wanting wanting to open himself up to this experience, but then getting scared and like really walling himself in, and then not necessarily realizing it or thinking it's like really smart to do that. And yeah, it's very interesting to hear talk uh, the way he talks through that, and like you get to see his journey in lifetime. Yeah, I fucking love it. Okay, <laughs> so is- I feel like we were in a natural segue to Peru there. <laughs> okay, before we went off on these tangents. <laughs> Um, I did have one question though. So, I mean, it, it, maybe you can speak to it as kind of a, an abstract question, I suppose. Uh, you know, you found yourself in China. This, this, you went there for this thing that didn't really work out, and you're in this weird situation in, in a foreign land. Most people, even if they wanted to learn Mandarin, would say, "Okay, let me go somewhere else and learn Mandarin." What do you think through your experiences or? Whatever, like, what made you the type of person or led you to, like, the decision to be like, oh, I'll start my own school. Like, not a lot of people would do that. Yeah. I, 
I just did it. You know, I mean, I, I wish I had like a bumper sticker answer for that. Yeah, which I guess I do, actually. <laughs> I just Listening did it. myself, I think I just did. Yeah, I just did it, right? I just kept moving forward, right? Like I just kept moving forward. And I think it was one of the moments where I, without being able to articulate or being really aware of what I was doing, I was in such a situation that I was just present and I was just moving forward. And perhaps because everything was so new and different, I had no materials with which to build, you know, the ego, fear, resentment monster hmm. uh, to, to, to kick my ass with. You know what I mean? Perhaps because I just had nothing. I could only be there and just go forward. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I just did it. I just went forward. I didn't stop. I just moved forward. Yeah, I just moved on. I didn't really think a lot about, you know, am I, I mean, I had no idea it was going to turn into this, you know, fairly large business and lead into all these things. And I was going to end up building this oncology network. I mean, I, I no concept of any of that. Um, I just knew that I needed to fix my visa. And so I did ready to fix my visa. And then I wanted a Mandarin school. Well, I have to open a Woofy. Well, okay, so what do I have to do? To, a Woofy is a wholly foreign owned entity which is the business entity in China that is not owned by a Chinese person, which is extremely difficult to make happen. Um, but, yeah, I just did it. And, you know, maybe a lot of it was ignorance mm -hmm. of having no idea what I was getting myself into, you know, like how how difficult and stressful But do you feel like this is something that, that, like a pattern throughout your life of like when there's not something in existence that needs to be, you're j you just bring it into existence. It's not like you see that there's a lack of resources and then go, oh, well, I'll abandon course. It seems like you're like, okay, I need, I'll create the resources. Yeah, fix it. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's cool to build stuff. Right? That's, yeah. I mean, that's what I like to do. But you acknowledge that's like a very unique trait. Most humans are not like that. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. 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 There's yeah. too few humans yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is like there's an old joke about like being a consultant, which is, you know, how to be a how to be a really good consultant is to go into a meeting and say, absolutely, I can do that for you. No problem. And then go home and sit on the bed and say, how the fuck am I going to do that? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's been appropriate to describe how, how a lot of this stuff in my life actually happened. <laughs> that's interesting. I feel like that segues into like, what are your uh, uh, what's your relationship to failure? Uh, it's necessary. Like it's necessary. I, I, as, as a, as a bench scientist, you learn early on how you are at coping with constant failure. Um, because I was doing a lot of DNA work. I was doing a lot of like fairly boring, but somewhat technical and tedious, uh, optimizing what we call PCR reactions, polymerase chain reaction, which is a way of selectively amplifying segments of DNA, right? And I got very, very good at optimizing other people's uh, PCR reaction cocktails, right? How much magnesium temperature, how many cycles, all this kind of stuff, right? How much polymerase, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you kind of work on running this whole batch of samples all week long, extracting the DNA, purifying it, doing the PCR, tagging it, running it out on gels. When I started, we were doing this with radioactive isotopes and uh, exposing x-ray films and then manually scoring the gels. And then we moved into like, um, you know, uh, fluorescence-based sequencing machines and stuff like that. But you would work with a set of samples, you know, eight or nine hours a day, all week. And at the end of the week, you're standing in the room 
you know, and you've got the DNA hopefully run out on this agarose gel, and you, there's a moment where you go, and then you flip on the UV light, and you see whether or not you're going to throw it all in the trash and go to the bar, or you've actually done something this week, right? And more often than not, you throw it all in the trash and go to the bar. A lot of bars on campus uh, at the University of New Orleans, by the way. I went to school at UNL. There were four bars on campus at the time, wow. uh, and I knew them all intimately. Um, yeah, so I, I think I got used to dealing with constant failure there. And that's a big part of my, that was something that benefited me, benefited me continuously throughout my life mm. was not internalizing failure, right? Awesome. Like I didn't fail because I'm stupid and I suck, right? I failed because I either didn't understand the problem or my solution wasn't doing what I thought it was or sometimes shit just happens, right? And so it's always a matter of, all right, well, how can I go back and change it? Right. Mm -hmm. what, what needs to change so that next time I don't fail. And I actually learned that from a guy named Steve Johnson, Dr. Steve Johnson, who I think at this point is the chair of the biology department. Um, or he may be retired now, I don't know. But he was like my mentor in science. Um, had a lot of great mentors in my life, and he was one of them. And he really helped me with that, not internalizing the failure of, uh, of, of doing bench science. Like which through advice? or if Yeah, through advice and just like, you know, pat on the shoulder and it's okay, buddy, you know. <laughs> keeping some beer in the fridge in the lab <laughs> next to the radioactive isotopes, you know? <laughs> <Gosh>. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a big that's a big part of being able to accomplish what you want is not getting stopped by failure. Like, you're going to fail. And, I mean, at this point, if I'm going to work with a startup or a technology company or something and I talk to the founders and they have yet to fail, I kind of don't want to work with them <laughs> until they have. That's awesome. Because you don't know what they're going to do yeah. when, when the failure does come. And, you know, that failure teaches you so much. You grow so much as a person through failure, right? I mean, if, if your whole life has been a victory lap up to this point, you're really a big question mark. Yeah. You know, like you don't know about yourself, and I certainly don't know about you, right? Totally. But when, once I've seen you, you know, face down on the canvas blowing snot bubbles a time or two, <laughs> you know, did you show up tomorrow, right? What happens? It tells me a lot about you, and you learn a lot about yourself that way. Yeah, I think that's a great, a great rule to not work with a startup until you've seen them fail. Only work with ones that have failed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Seriously? if you, you I know, if you haven't pivoted, sense. you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you know, and absolutely. You pivot on a failure point or a point of failure. Yeah, right. So, anything to say on this? So, I, again, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this. Um, this is. The, the question or there's been history of this debate and I feel like it's a, it's an argument more about the semantics of or the way that we're talking about this rather than I don't I don't mind failure like if I'm trying to do something I don't mind I Jen said that she she likes failure and I said that's bullshit nobody enjoys failing that's fucking crazy there's just no way I, I you're lying you're straight up you're lying I I don't like failing. I'm perfectly content failing. Like, you know, especially if it's Are you perfectly content failing? No, I'm not. I'm not actually no, I'm not. I'll 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 do something until I no longer fail at it, which I think is a very appropriate way of or or yeah. or I'll determine that it's not worth the time and energy that I'm spending into it and move on to something else. But don't you feel like that sometimes the fear or lack of desire to fail keeps you from starting things in the first place? Not not necessarily. And I feel like you're convoluting two things that I've said, like there, there's definitely been something, especially like I don't know. I'm assuming it's probably still there. I don't know if I've really addressed it, but definitely as a younger child, um, and trying to determine what passion I was or like what I should study. It was like, well, you know, I really enjoyed physics, but like 
why would I go into physics if I don't really feel like I'd ever be Einstein? It's like, if I can't be the best at something, you know, why bother pursuing it? Like in, as, in terms of like a schooling sense, this, I was strictly, you know, mostly speaking, I don't know how, where, how much it permeates through the rest of my existence, but um, you know, what's the point of, of doing something like that? Like, especially as like a career, like, you know, if, if, if I'm good at all these different things, like and I, I can't be, you know, it was really difficult for me to choose a direction that because it was like, really love physics but like you know i'm probably not dedicated to physics enough to to be amazing in physics and then it just sort of feels like a waste and that's not necessarily me feeling fearing failing it's just that you know when when you're faced at 18 year old 18 years old to make this direction directional choice of your life like oh this is gonna be my career at least this is how it's presented to 18 year old like you know you gotta pick your major you don't want to waste forty thousand dollars a year you know like yeah i'm not gonna go into physics you know what i mean it's fear of the idea that you might not be magnificent yeah like but again it's not yeah i mean so there definitely is a fear element to that but i don't i think that's necessarily I don't mind failing. I don't mind getting a problem wrong. I don't feel fear being wrong. I just fear investing years of my life into something that it turns out that I could have been magnificent at something else. And I'm just, I'm convinced that if I do anything enough times, I'm going to end up magnificent at it because that's what life has proven to me. Why do you have to be magnificent? <laughs> that's a good question. Like who says that's a requirement? I don't necessarily think that it is. I think that I have the capacity to be maybe magnificent would be an overstatement, but pretty pretty good at a lot of things. Exceptional. Exceptional at a lot of things. Um, and that sort of made me stagnant a lot of times uh, because it's, it's like, yeah, I could do so many things that it's difficult to then choose a path. Like what, what's going to be my most enjoyment? Um, and I, I feel like, especially in the last couple of years, um, been maturing out of that uh enjoy what you're doing in the moment don't look at the you know be more present if this is something that you're enjoying doing give it your all give it your best shot see what happens you don't need to plan out the rest of your life what they tell 18 year olds is a lie <laughs> <laughs> um yeah because i truly believe that i think you know, whatever you're doing give it be the best that you, whatever you can do like even if it's serving tables like nail it uh, and you'll enjoy it then like always do your best yeah it's so true that i mean it makes everything better it's like everything's always better when you first when you when you get good at it like when you can see that progress and you're like damn i'm i'm now i'm a professional at this whatever it is even if it's baking bread you know whatever it's it makes everything more enjoyable when you adopt that attitude uh, the learning not to extrapolate that out to be more in the moment is a tough lesson that i struggle with i suppose But yeah, different than hating failure. I mean, I mean, yeah, nobody likes to fail. You're lying. I do not think I'm lying. I feel I feel genuinely entertained by my failure, but it usually is on like you know not a very big scale. I mean, but I, I guess that's perspective that other people might think it's a big scale. Like you know, I know my uh, when I moved to Los Angeles, my roommate was a professor in particle physics at UCLA and he was like that's been my lane you know my whole life like this very specific niche everything has led to this like every step is like very 
obvious of exactly what I'm supposed to do and that like I just horrified him and delighted him but like that I as soon as I moved to LA I emailed a bunch of uh, haunted houses being like hey here's all these things that I could do for you potentially and about half of them were lies and being like yeah this consultant thing of like I can do this for you and I can do it the very best and then if I get hired for it oh fuck I gotta figure out how to do this and then yeah like I got I got hired as a professional pumpkin carver and uh had never carved a pumpkin not since I was a kid like just like you know triangle face so had to watch watch a bunch of YouTube videos carved a couple pumpkins until I was good at it you know my first few ones were pretty bad but that's kind of my learning curve but even like I probably will never be good at darts and then I find it so hilarious to be a person throwing darts because like how incredibly fantastically horrible I I am at it is only entertaining to me like it's not see I think the difference is I think that you know failure is not really what enters my mind. I don't think I even look at something as failing. Like most things is failing. It's it's it would be the rejection that would come from my failures that I would be afraid of. Rejection? Not, not the failure. Like yeah, like say you get hired for a job that you're unqualified for with the assumption that you'll be able to learn on the spot. You can't meet those challenges and therefore are fired or rejected because of that. That I definitely find more scary than any 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 aspect of failing it's always fear there's always fear it's always comes down to fear in my opinion right yeah like uh you know i i feel like there's really only one emotion right and everything comes from either you have it or you don't have it and you're afraid of it not being there right and we all know what it is right and you know i i learned in my career, like <clears throat> without being able to articulate it in the same way that I do now, you know, I got really good at conflict resolution and, you know, I've managed some pretty big teams in my time. Um, you know, having multiple tiers of teams of 30 to 50 plus people. Right. And a huge part of your job at that point is, is middle management conflict resolution, right? Mm-hmm. Keeping all of your, keeping all your middle management guys working well together and they always have issues. And I kind of learned that, Whenever someone is being difficult, if I can get my own ego out of the way and I can look at what they're afraid of, if I can find the fear, then I will truly understand what is actually bothering this person. And if I can address that, then the conflict will pretty much go away. Now, in order to get to that place, I have to approach the conflict from a place of humility, which is the hardest lesson to learn, was for me anyway, right? was to be very, very, very humble when I'm in a, con- a situation involving any kind of conflict, whether it's internally in myself, right? Or, or if I'm trying to mediate or, or get along with someone else. Um, finding what they're afraid of always, always, always leads you to the solution of, of, of the problem, of the conflict, right? Like we either have love, right? Or we don't have it and we're afraid of not getting it or losing it, right? That's what rejection is, right? It's the lack of love. Someone's either taking it away or not giving it, right? And we all fear that. Right? We all fear that very much. It drives some people more than others. It drives some cultures in different ways. Right? Like, as you were talking, you're saying these incredibly American things. You know? <laughs> like, you know, we have this concept that if you're not really good at doing something, you shouldn't do it. Like, what is that? Who said that's how it should be? That's nonsense. Right? Like, that, that single-handedly probably accounts for 50% of the unhappiness in the United States. Yeah. Right? Like, you go to karaoke... In, right, and I spent a lot of time in karaoke because I lived in Asia for a long time, and so I spent a lot of time in karaoke. In karaoke, and everybody sings, 
and everybody has a great time. And you go to karaoke in the States and 10 people sing and 100 people watch. Yeah. Because we have this idea that if you're not good at singing, you shouldn't do it. Right? Well, that's stupid because you're singing to have fun. And actually, nobody cares if you can sing well or not. Right? Like when we play sports. Yeah? If you're not going to be on the varsity team, if you're not going to get a scholarship, if you're not going to win the championship, then you shouldn't play. Get off the team. What the fuck is that? Right? The word is play, folks. Play. <laughs> yeah. Right? Americans particularly, we've forgotten how to play to play. We only play to win. And we say that. And we're proud of it when we say it. I play to win. Yeah. Well, you're not playing anymore. Right? You're torturing yourself and everyone around you. <laughs> right? So I, I think that's, that's something I, I really learned a lot in, in, in other cultures. Right? Mm -hmm. And we've really lost it in the West. We have this idea that in order for something to be worthwhile, the fact of it's fulfilling to you personally or you enjoy it or not is irrelevant. And it's only if you can excel at it and be fabulous and, and, you know, get all this accolades, you know, from from everyone around you, then otherwise you're wasting your time. And that's quite sad, right? That's really quite sad because that is part of this whole movement of focusing on happiness instead of joy, right? What's the, what? Happiness versus joy. Yeah. Happiness is like is like the end result and joy is the the process or no like happiness how? comes from outside of you things can make you happy good food makes me happy Interesting. right physical contact sometimes can make you happy right sunshine all that good stuff right but that comes from outside of you it can come or go and it's beyond your control joy comes from inside of you and you can choose to be joyful whenever you want there's a switch in your head you can flip and be deliriously giddily stupidly joyful whenever you want regardless of what is happening around you that is joy that's, that's the real deal beautiful distinction that is the real deal no one can take joy from you only you yeah yeah you can turn away from it you can throw it away happiness comes and goes right and if i sing for happiness which is other people telling me afterwards how good i am or it's sounding good in my own ear and me thinking that I'm better than others or that I have some connection with the song or whatever ego trip I'm on at the moment, right? That's something else that can come and go. And eventually that will, I'll turn that against myself or will be turned against me and it will become a source of, of pain and suffering. But if I am joyful from the inside, right? If I have joy, which is I'm just joyful because I can sing, because singing, whatever, right? It doesn't matter if it's good or bad or nobody likes it or I suck at it or I even know the words. It doesn't matter. Right. You can be truly joyful no matter what. And this whole process of taking everything that you need and tricking yourself into thinking that it's outside of you. Right. This is a big part of it. And, and as Westerners and particularly as Americans, we are particularly enslaved by this little facet of, uh, of the parasite. Yeah? In my opinion. What were you saying this morning about like perspective and reaction and whatnot? Like it ties into this well. Yeah, it does. Um, I'm not sure how much background to give. We were talking with a friend here in Pi who was referring to somebody else who was talking about how they will take on narratives, uh, not good narratives. Uh, they happen to be black, so they'll take on the narrative of being like, you know, it's it's really hard to be black in America. You know, and that's a narrative that, you know, I I believe, and I, it's it's difficult acknowledge the fact that i'm a privileged white male talking about this that i'm aware of this just for the record but i believe that that's a narrative that that one can assume and then, then once you assume that narrative for yourself then it becomes true to a certain extent um and and i realize that there are some caveats to all of this but like you know she, 
the person's very affluent. She's very well spoken. You know, she she and and the person we were speaking about this other person with was like when she said this, she's like, oh, I didn't even realize you were black. And then as soon as that narrative was placed on her, then I'm sure that there was a perspective switch from somebody else. So like assuming these narratives is a choice, uh, you have the choice not to do it. And and too frequently, and it's similar to perspectives. The perspectives and narratives kind of run hand in hand with one another. And your perspectives are a choice. And they're one of the only things that we truly have any control over as well. You know, you can, can't necessarily choose what happens to you, but you can choose how you look at those those occurrences and how you then internalize them that we do have complete control over um just you can choose to be joyful you can choose to say you know wow i got into a car accident or holy shit i i'm safe you know i didn't didn't die well not paralyzed it's perspective um but the the real argument that we were having or conversation we were having with this person was about if you don't realize that it's a choice is it a choice um and then how does that affect how one should view other, you know, other people, other people should always be with love and acceptance, but like, you can't, you know, you shouldn't necessarily let everybody into your little bubble. You know, it's, there was, there was a whole conversation about, it's like, do you have endless concepts. patience and acceptance for these people who are taking on these destructive narratives and not doing anything to work to change or get out of them because they don't see them as narratives or a choice? Well, everything's a choice. And, if you're not aware that you're making a choice, it just means you're making that choice on autopilot. Right. Yes. Which then goes into uh, the reactionaries. Right. Uh, you know, to be a reactionary, right. to be just a sheep, to be to be not alive is really what I would say. Everybody's alive. It's being not awake. Yes. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I want to be so woke. Especially here. But do we? What? I get this oh. person we're having this conversation with says like the hardest thing about pie is the nobody wants to think and that you know that they all want to be they want to claim wokeness and have these uh grandiose presentational yeah. statements but not actually think deep and when things are challenged they all turn away from her yeah. uh, you know we're all on our own paths <laughs> like doesn't matter how woke you are just nothing matters <laughs> Always your directions up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that was all. Um, Peru. 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 You found yourself in Peru. Oh, yeah, I found this version of myself in Peru. Yes? Yeah. Can you describe the past version of yourself at all? It's so hard to imagine yes, we you not about, as you. you know? yeah. we, we never met him. I, yeah, I think I told you the guys, this, guys this before, but... I, I don't know if I can. I can tell you what other people said about me before, and it, it was had such a strong impact on me um, to hear this when I, I had this incredible experience in Peru, this kind of spiritual, psychological awareness waking up thing. Right? I don't really know what to call it. Um, <clears throat> and when I came back, you know, everyone, you know, my f- family and friends. And everyone commented on how you know calm I was and I was happy all the time and uh, the thing happy that they all said the time or joyful all the time joyful all the time <laughs> yeah, joyful all the time um, the thing that they said was before everybody liked me you know I've always been if I may you know toot my own horn a little bit I've always been fairly charismatic um, you know I 
fairly humorous. I get along fairly well with people, right? I think I was generally well-liked. Um, I did a lot for my friends and family. Like, I was there for them when they needed me, blah, 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 blah. But they, the comment that came up was, we were always a little bit afraid of you because they never knew when I was going to blow it, when I was going to blow my top or freak out or explode did you have or whatever. history of blowing your top? Or I just did, the, yeah, oh, okay. I did. I mean, I have a tattoo here that literally says angry yeah. <laughs> from, my, from my teenage years. Um, yeah, no, I definitely had a, a serious anger problem. Um, for a lot of my life and martial arts and stoicism helped me a lot with that but there were you know that was armor on one side of my body and Mm. the the, the other side was completely undefended Mm. and that's what I that's one of the things that I learned in Peru Um, so well spoken yes Hmm? so well spoken very nicely said yeah yeah, so I think that was probably the biggest difference right is calm right I'm just so much more calm and getting out of my own head you know and the the effect on people around me i think has been you know people that are close to me and people that you know choose to be invested in what i do and how i do it right as we do with the people that we love um has been really positive you know i think i've become a better person for them to have in their lives which is quite cool right i hope i hope that that's the case for them right yeah I, i i think i had a pretty serious temper problem i was very driven um you know, if I was working, which I was doing 80 to 100 hours a week for many, many years, wow. um, you know, building, I built built four companies. I had pretty successful exits on three of them. Um, they were all in fairly complex uh, industries, you know, heavily regulated, very high risk, um, very technical stuff with healthcare data and clinical research data and stuff like that. And... You know, you could walk into the room and have a conversation with me and I wouldn't even look at you, you know, for two or three days at a time. Uh, You know, I would had road rage. I mean, all that stuff. Right. I had high blood pressure. Um, You know, I was I I was working out two hours a day minimum. And, you know, in my early 30s and eating super clean diet and on very high doses of uh, Lisanoprel because I had such high blood pressure. Wow. Yeah. Uh, my untreated blood pressure at one point was like 172 or something like that. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad from not sleeping and stress and all that. Um, so, yeah, a lot of, lot, lot of changes. A lot of changes after that. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question or if I just <laughs> rambled. I think I may have just rambled. I don't remember my question. I'm, I'm just picturing you. So what was your experience like in Peru? Yeah. How did you find yourself yeah, it was it was life changing. So I had I had sold um, I'd sold my last my last uh, company and took some time off and kind of floated around and wasn't you know really needed to decompress and a break. I had been working so hard and that the last one was really challenging for a lot of ways. I had co-founder issues. There were you know legal problems. The exit was incredibly difficult and complicated. Um, because of the nature of the product and the kind of data and, and, and contracts that we had. Um, and it, it took a lot out of me. And I, I finished that off and kind of sold everything, sold the house and the cars and, you know, all my stuff and just kind of like went off to, f- you know, figure out what was going to be next. So I felt like I probably didn't want to be uh, a healthcare technology startup founder anymore. <laughs> um, and that was a pretty big part of my identity for, for quite a number of years before that. So I went down to Peru. I wanted to learn Spanish well. 
and uh, was going to do some consulting uh, for a medical device company. And I kind of went off the rails a little bit, honestly. I had a bit of a personal crisis, to be honest. All the stress and everything and all this kind of unprocessed things that had been building up um, for, you know, 40 years uh, caught up with me in a pretty hard way. And I ended up bottoming out pretty hard personally. And I ended up going to this place uh, in this little town called Asia and doing this, I guess it's a treatment program. This is like kind of a spiritual treatment program. I'm not really sure what to call it. Um, lots of different people go there for lots of different things. Um, you know, there were people in there like me who were stressed and, you know, I have uh, a history of a complex PTSD uh, diagnosis. There were other people with PTSD in there. Um, you know, people battling with addiction, depression, schizophrenia, people who were just soul-seeking hippies, right? Uh, any kind of a mix. And we used reading, reading out loud, as a kind of exercise to force you to become present, to sort of learn what that is, and then learn how to be present for longer and longer periods of time. And that was absolutely life-changing. It absolutely changed my life in every way changed my entire perception of the universe and my place in it and uh, gave me the most incredible awareness of myself and my place in the universe and kind of what life is really all about and uh, yeah it's been it's been a great ride since then it's been a great ride since then it's interesting how much your relationship to books and reading has shaped and changed over the course of your life yeah definitely they've always been a big part of it you know like as the, the the nerd kid who read and you know ended up in college being able to correctly use words that i had no idea how to pronounce <laughs> because no one else in my world ever said them i'm still right? finding that yeah yeah heavy being, readers like, know this saying a word out loud for the first time and being like i have no idea if that's how right. you say the word <laughs> right know, right like, never heard anyone say it yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah, so and reading was a big part of it. What what we did in, in, in at the place in Peru, what they did, what they had you do, um, is every morning you wake up and you're staying at this kind of like villa out in out in the middle of nowhere and it's this gorgeous, wonderful place. And there's no cell phones, no T V, no radio, the electricity goes off at night. It's fairly self sufficient. There's a fish farm and they compost and they grow the fruits and vegetables and there's a really nice pool and a chef uh, you know who's trained in France and it's a very very nice comfortable physically comfortable environment so you don't really have to think about anything and you wake up in the morning and you do a little bit of meditation and then you go into a room with another person and you each get one copy of the same book and you read it so you read a sentence I read a sentence out loud back and forth back and forth and we do that for 10 hours a day seven days a week and I did that for two and a half months just reading sentences out loud by the way these were in all books in a language that I did not understand when you started yeah when I started I did not understand uh, I, I, earned, I ended up understanding understanding it by the end I read 42 books uh, Ooh, 42 yeah, what a perfect number yeah but I know right yeah I actually just realized that <laughs> never made that connection before huh <laughs> Oh, there you go. Synchronicity. <laughs> yeah. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're creeping in the bushes. Um, yeah, so through that reading, um, you know, that was really a different way to use books and reading than I ever had. Uh, I, 
I'm sure most most people have had the experience, especially if you're if you've got a lot going on in your head, you spend a lot of time in your head, you'll be reading along, reading a book, and then you'll have to stop and go back like six pages. Yeah. Because you were reading but you weren't paying attention. Yeah. You were off in your head and you can read and not pay attention at the same time. That's one of the things that I struggle with uh, having you read Richard Bach to me is that I, I continuously get caught up in, in how beautiful a line was or like how does he have the ability to like combine these things into such an appealing way and then be like, oh, wait, I wasn't listening. Fuck, like rewind. See, I would pay attention to those things, right? So when you break from being present, right, <clears throat> when you go off into your head into – you know, a, a thought train of analysis, which is almost always utterly useless. And, like, and this is a guy who, who made his career in, 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 in analyzing data and being analytical. You know, I'm, I'm a scientist and a, and a, and a big data guy. Uh, and I can tell you right now, 99% of the time analysis is bullshit and it's doing nothing for you. Um, but whenever you find yourself drifting off, right, like that, I always examine that a little bit. What is it about that that broke my presence, Right. What about what was just said threatened this sort of this amalgamation of ego, fear, and resentment, which and this is something I learned from Don Miguel Ruiz, calling it the parasite, that kind of personification of these, you know, elements of suffering. This is all in four agreements? Yeah, in the four agreements. Yeah, yeah. So he, it, it's a Toltec philosophy, right, that all human beings are infected with a parasite, right? And the parasite feeds off of our suffering. Mm. And whenever we give it things... Right. We're feeding it and it will make us suffer so it can eat that. Right. And really, it's it's personifying what I believe to be the sort of sort of three pillars of suffering and, you know, unhappiness and, and pain in your life, which are ego, fear and resentment. Right. So ego is ego. Fear is thinking about the future and resentment is thinking about the past. So mm. the three quickest ways to fuck yourself up is to be thinking about yourself, thinking about the future or thinking about the past. If you can stop doing those things, then you just be here. And whenever you're doing those things, you're feeding el parasito, yeah? You're feeding the parasite, yeah? So that's a little personification that works for me very well, yeah. right? Not to disown responsibility for that, but it just helps me, right? Because I can think, don't feed the parasite. So do you right? have a practice, like, now, today, if, if, if you started either, yeah, feeling feeling ego fear resentment if you started feeling bad sad mm -hmm. whatever like what is your what do you do yeah so awareness yeah the key is to just be aware of it and you can't fight it or get down on yourself like god i shouldn't be thinking about that i shouldn't be thinking about that right that just, just feeds it harder yeah, yeah it just feeds it harder right because you're just rejecting reality yeah. right which as as the buddha says is the source of all suffering right rejecting what is and you were thinking about it and that's a fact right yeah. so accept it and move on i like to think about but you do you know, have I, like a, what, a tangible move on process? I do. Like, I have a couple. That? Yeah, I have a couple. One of them is a visualization. And I think about in front of me a night sky, mm. right? And I think about watching like a shooting star or something, but move in this trajectory in front of me, right? You know, from left to right, up and down in this nice arc, right? In this nice Newtonian trajectory in front of me. And it reminds me like, think your thoughts. Feel your feelings, but watch them. Mm. You are the one behind, 
right? And Michael Sanger in The Untethered Soul talks about this a lot. He doesn't use this exact visualization, but he, he talks a lot about this kind of thing and how to do it, right? And that's one of my core books. Highly recommend it, The Untethered, Untethered Soul. Soul. Right. Yeah, by Mickey Sanger. Um, also a software guy, by the way, nice. and, a, and a yogi master. Ooh, um, solid combo. Yeah, with a terrible ponytail. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I had that little visualization, and I just imagine, like, this is the thought, this is the feeling, whatever it was, and I just watch it go by. And I just watch it, right? And once I am aware of it and I have disassociated from it, I remind myself that that thought or that feeling or that voice in my head, that is not me, right? You are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. You are not what you do. You are not what you've done. You are not what has been done to you. You are not what you will do. You are the one who watches all of those things and you choose how to react to them, but they are not you and that's the greatest trick that the parasite ever pulls is making you believe that that golem of fear ego and resentment is you and we put so much energy into it that it now has a will to live and it doesn't want to die but when you become aware of it it vanishes instantly it loses all of its power and it doesn't want to die so when an idea approaches a thought approaches words on a page lines in a song a sunset a butterfly an ant biting your toe, whatever it is. When something approaches that you are present for, you have threatened the parasite. It will do everything it can to take you out of that moment. It will do everything it can to rob you of the now. And it will use the past and the future to do that. And so whenever I'm listening, right, or reading, and some idea comes and I instantly go off on a head trip, create a little movie in my mind and go live in it, I always try to examine that, to just be aware of it. Not to try to analyze it or be, you know, Freudian or Jungian about it and, mm. you know, do literary analysis of my own <laughs> thoughts and behavior, right? Just be aware of it. That's all it takes to rob it of its power, right? And once you're aware of it, you will start to see the pattern mm. of it, right? Maybe you'll have a realization about it later, but that will come to you without thinking about it. You don't have to analyze it to get that insight, right? Analysis does not equal insight. Awareness brings you insight when it comes to personal things. You said you have a few. What else other than the stars? Um, yeah, so uh, another one is to feel my socks if I'm wearing shoes. Ooh. Yeah? To feel my socks if I'm wearing shoes. So uh, one of the great things that Eckhart Tolle says in The Power of Now, which is one of my favorite books, <laughs> you know, he, he makes this great point. He has a whole chapter about it that you can always access the now, as he calls it. In his, he's a bit bombastic, but I love him. Yeah. You can access the now through your body, right? And that's true right? Your physical body is how we experience the physical universe around us. And that is only ever now, right? So I'll just feel my socks and my shoes, right? And I'll kind of use that to just be aware of physically what's happening. So I start with my socks and my shoes, and then I can feel my underwear and then my pants on my leg, right? And my shirt and the chair I'm sitting in, and if there's a breeze, and then I'll actually look around the room and all of a sudden, everything's brighter, and I actually notice what color your eyes are and all this great stuff, right? So it's using that f some physical thing to just bring me back and be here. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that if you just become aware of the feeling... She's wearing socks, so she's doing it. She just did it. Yeah? <laughs> if you just become aware of the feeling of your socks on your feet or the mic in your hand, anything else that was happening in your head stops. Mm -hmm. It instantly stops. That mind movie stops. Dead in its tracks. You've robbed it of its power. Right? And you get better and better at doing that. And that's what the reading exercises I learned in Peru did, is they forced you into that state by reading back and forth. 
So before you kind of figure out how to do this and become aware of awareness and all this great stuff, you have to just be here long enough for those automatic responses in your brain to stop. The running programs in your head that have been on loop for your entire life Mm -hmm. to just stop so you can actually become aware and wake up. So you read a sentence, I can only drift off into my mind movie for as long as it takes you to read one sentence. That is my turn. But I can't even drift off that far because I have to be watching for the full stop for the period at the end of the sentence because then it's my turn. I don't want to mess you up, right? Then I'm reading and I'm reading out loud so I'm paying attention to my pronunciation. I can't really drift off then. Then I stop and it's your turn and we go back and forth. And so it forces you to be present at the very least at every sentence full stop in a book, right? You may, you may, you may be really good, right? And I was really good. I could drift off into a... <laughs> to a six-hour movie in, in the span of eight words on a written page. No, yeah. no problem, yeah? Most, most people stayed at that place for a month. I was there for two and a half. <laughs> yeah? I, had a, I had a lot of un, unwinding to do. Um, yeah, that's what it does. It just makes you be present. And it teaches you, without teaching you, to be aware of your thoughts and your feelings and not to let them own you and not to believe that that's who you are, but to just be aware of them. How is it different from, like, I can say that it definitely is different, but how would you say it's different from, like, pushing away your feelings, like, not acknowledge, like, I mean. Yeah, like, rejecting, yeah. Yeah, rejecting them. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not going to feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it kind of has the same end result, even though the intention is different, but that I imagine it doesn't at all have the same end result. Yeah, I don't think it does at all. Yeah. Right? So, you know, I did a, a lot of that. And I was much younger, and that led to a lot of anger, mm. right? Just like pushing away, like refusing, refusing this, right? Mm-hmm. So what did what does refusing it like look like or feel like? What's happening? Yeah, so there's a difference it? between accepting something and dwelling and obsessing on it, right? And I think that's that's a distinction that probably just takes a little life experience to learn and figure out, right? Um, you know, when I was much younger, I would have a <clears throat> something would happen, right? And things happen, right? As as it turns out, nothing, nothing, nothing is controlled by us. Yeah, Nothing. The only thing we control is our own reaction to the world, right? Or really our own perception of the world. A lot of times we don't even control our own reactions. But our perception drives the reaction. So if you can change your perception, you can pretty much determine what reaction you're going to have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something would happen, which is absolutely out of my control because I don't control anything. And... I would perceive that in a bad way and then I would get down on myself for getting upset about it and I would just go into a loop of obsessing about it and being like, I'm not going to feel that way. I feel that way because I'm weak. I feel that way because I can't control myself. I feel that way because there's something wrong with me, right? And that internalizing of this failure to react the way that I wanted to, right? Which is again, just like this thing happened, you can't control and it sucks because you can't control it and you can't control that either. So it's just like this downward spiral, right? This uh, terrible feedback loop, right, of, of suffering. And accepting it is quite different, right? Because I don't think that I had this feeling because I suck or that it was weakness or failure or a, a defect of character for me to think and feel that. I just watch it go by. Say, yep, that's what I thought and felt. And let it go. Think your thoughts, feel your feelings, and then let them pass through you. 
don't hang on to it. When you hang on to it, whether because you're trying to push it away or pull it closer, you're giving it energy. You're, you're, you're giving it your attention. You're giving it your awareness. And it will absolutely burn you up. And you will end up with bitterness and fears and resentments and conflict and trauma and stress and pain and suffering everywhere in your life. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Making a lot of sense. <laughs> so when you read, try the one sentence, one sentence thing. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about yeah. it after you told us about yeah. it, but I don't... it'll be a different thing. <clears throat> it'll be a different thing. But it's good. I've done it with a few people, you know, like I, I, I read a lot of really powerful books and a lot of my you know, books. I then went back and got in, got in English and keep them around. And some of those core books I, I now carry copies of and I give to people or I lend them a Kindle or I buy it for them if they have a Kindle or whatever. Um, if, if they ask, right, mm -hmm. because they've been very beneficial to me. And, you know, all these books, all, the, all these books say the same thing. You know, if you look at sort of my my little library of, you know, the Richard Bach stuff, Michael Singer, um, you know, Eckhart Tolle, uh, Emmett Fox, right? They're all saying the same thing. And, and that extends to, you know, Buddha and Jesus and, you know, Paolo Pa or whatever. Like all these guys, they're all saying the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Like the truth is the truth. And I'm, it's, it's almost cliche of me to say that, right? Because everybody says that, right? But it, it's actually true, right? They all do say the same thing. So we can say, yeah, they all say the same thing, so I don't need to read any evidence. It's all bullshit, right? And that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's your ego, yeah, just robbing you of something quite special, right? Uh, always examine that rejection, right? So, you know, you're going to get – you're going to accept the truth perhaps in a different flavor than the way I accept it, right? I mean, the truth is the truth, and we all know it when we see it, whether or not we admit it to ourselves or anyone else. Everybody knows the truth when they hear it. The truth is like gravity. It's a fundamental aspect of the universe that we are in. You know, it is the truth. It is reality. It's the only thing, right? And we all know it exactly when we see it, when we recognize it. We know it in ourselves. We know it in others. We know it in big thoughts and small thoughts. Sometimes we reject it. We deny it. We don't admit it. We choose not to see it. But we all know it. Everybody knows the truth. There's no one who will listen to us having this conversation about suffering and awareness and presence and be like, that's bullshit. That's not true at all. No one has that reaction. Nobody, right? Everybody goes, yeah, yep, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, yep, and then they throw it out of their head, right? Or, or they, they accept it and take it forward. Who knows, right? But I've never said any of this to anybody and have them just say, absolutely not. Completely untrue, <laughs> right? Balderdash. Like, nobody's ever said that, ever, right? We all know the truth when we hear it. We need it in different flavors, right? And we need it different flavors in different times of our life. Yeah. But we always know it, yeah? And it's never hurt you. The truth will never, ever, ever, ever hurt you. Rejecting the truth can hurt you. Mm. Yeah? Denying the truth can hurt you. But the actual literal truth will never hurt you or anyone else. Yeah? Because it's reality, right? And that's God to me. That's what God is, right? Truth and reality. Yeah. Interesting. Everything else is not, right? That's why going into that past and future movie is bad for you, right? That's why it leads you down this path into darkness. And when you are present and aware, you get joyful and you have and give love, right? You're able to give and receive love when you're present, right? Why is that? Why, why are those two things linked, right? So 
you could say, and I do say, <clears throat> and many people say, that now is the only thing that's real, right? What does that mean? So if I'm imagining some future scenario, right? Nobody knows the future, obviously. So that's not real. That's a fantasy in my head. And if I'm thinking about the past, well, that's already over. It's not happening anymore. And I'm probably not even remembering it accurately. Almost every study ever done on memory ever has shown that memory is absolute garbage. We don't even remember this morning accurately. Like, it's nonsense, right? It's, I can't change the past. It's not happening anymore. That's also a fantasy in my head. Neither of those things are real, right? So now is the only thing that's real, but I'm changing, right? Everybody knows that. Well, if I go into the past or the future, if I go into a movie in my head, then now I'm in something that I've created, right? And that is not of God or the universe or whatever you want to call them. You use the word God, right? So God created everything. Everything is God. Well, when I leave reality, I have exited from God. I have exited the light of God, right? <laughs> I have broken my connection with the universe or Gaia, whatever you want to say, right? Because I have left the universe as it was created and me in it, and I'm now in some little mini mind movie of my own creation, which isn't real anymore. That connection is broken, right? So all the really good things in the universe, like love, like joy, like beauty, that connection is severed. But when you're present now, they can just download into you, just download all that good shit into you, right? So being now, being, being truly present is the greatest thing. And when you find yourself exiting the present, that's really something to, to be aware of. There's a reason that some things will instantly throw you out of reality, instantly throw you into this memory or this scenario. You know, when you're, driving, when you're driving to meet somebody and you find yourself having the same conversation with them in your head on a loop, why? Why are you doing that? Right? What is it about this person or this thing that you're going to be talking about that has you so fucking threatened that you're going to have you're going to have built this entire world around a fantasy in your head so that by the time you get there your fragile little parasite is so protected by your investment and your belief in that scenario that you won't even hear or see what is actually said and heard mm -hmm. right you have predetermined the outcome in the car on the way right what was so fucking scary about this person or this meeting or this situation that made you do that right and again, it's not something to be analyzed and, you know, figured out with a calculator. Just be aware of it, and the light will chase it away. I like that, and the light will chase it away. How do you, uh, what makes you like people? <laughs> what makes me like people? Yeah, like what qualities? I choose to like people, <laughs> and that's a fact. <laughs> yeah, that is a choice. That is a choice. I mean, what makes you like certain people more than other people, I guess? Like, are there other qualities that you resonate? I mean, like, is it uh, like when you see truth in somebody or not see truth in someone? I mean, do you still, uh, being such an evolved creature, do you still not like <laughs> people sometimes? <laughs> so, I, so I started doing something a while back, right? And it was, you know, because I was kind of a, polarizing person myself and so that made me easily polarized by others mm -hmm. right and I started doing this little trick where before I had any interaction with anyone I would take a breath and in my head I would say this is going to be a positive interaction and I would just kind of like affirm that right before whatever it was if it's checking out at you know Costco or talking to somebody for the first time or you know I bump into somebody on, on the bus whatever right so I would sort of consciously frame that, that this is going to be a positive interaction, right? 
because every reaction will be if you if you choose for it to be so mm -hmm. right like you're going to get something from everyone you're going to learn something they're going to give you something it may not be what you wanted at that moment right but it's always there it's always there you don't always see it you don't always take it but it's always there so you get different things from different people and if if i'm expecting like you know the three of us we get along like like this is fun we're laughing right we're talking about topics that i really like to talk about you guys are interesting so that's one thing that i'm getting from you guys right if i go talk to somebody else and i go in with the expectation that this is what good is right then they're going to disappoint me hmm. because they're not going to be you right they're not going to be you guys it's going to be a different interaction and i could set myself up to lose whatever gift that interaction has by hanging that expectation on it right or I could try to let that go right before I talk to them. And for me, it's easier to do that the closer I get, right? Because then I can be like, stop, okay, good, right, go, right? What am I going to learn here? Because right? everybody's going to teach you something. That's your choice, not theirs. You know, whether or not you teach me, that's up to me, not you. It's got nothing to do with you, yeah. frankly, right? <laughs> that, that's all me. Whether or not I learn from you, whether or not I benefit from my interaction with you, that's 100% my choice. Nothing to do with you or where you want, right? So you can choose that. And that's a conscious choice. It gets easier, but I think in the beginning, a little affirmation is good. Yeah. Have you been met with any resistance now, like since taking on a life of choosing Absolutely. lessons and positivity? Absolutely. Some people are just irritating as fuck. I mean, like not resistance <laughs> within yourself. Like, does anybody tell you, like, uh, you know, anger is good or that? Yeah, people say stuff like that all the time. That's where they're at. Good for them. <laughs> you know, like, good for you. You know, do that. Okay. Do that. Be angry. Just, you know, let me know how it works out for you. Yeah. Right. That's, that's your deal, man. You know, I'm not going to engage with it. That's my choice. Right. You can be as angry as you want. You can be as unhappy as you want. You can want or expect from me as much as you want. It's not going to make a difference. You know, like. How do you choose? whom to engage with whoever's around you know i mean <laughs> you just can engage in different ways right like and that that's really where like the conscious awareness part of it comes and like it it's effort i'm not saying that you know like i'm just you know floating on a zen cloud farting buddhas because that's <laughs> that's not it at all right i mean it's it's it still takes effort and it always will right and i have days where i'm better at it and days where i'm worse you know just like anything else but it's that awareness of like, okay, this, this can be good. This can be good, right? Like <clears throat> even if someone is just aggressive and rude and wants to fight, like I can still get something positive out of that interaction, right? And the positive thing I get from it may be I'm just going to be aware that this is a shit show and I choose not to engage, right? And I just don't engage, right? And mm -hmm. just look at the sun anyway, right? It's, it's, it's a choice, right? It's a, it's a conscious choice to shift that perception or to see the good in it. I think it gets easier, it becomes more, I don't want to use automatic, but it becomes more effortless, mm -hmm. right? More instinctive as you remember that that's how you were when, it's all, when all this started, right? What, that what's how you were? You approached everything without expectation. Mm -hmm. yeah. when, I mean, when you were a baby, you know, like all, when, you, when you go down this path, and you'll hear this from a lot of people, you know, when these realizations about life, the universe, and everything hits you, it feels more like remembering than anything else, right? Yeah. I'm sure you guys have experienced that, Absolutely. right? Like, you knew, 
You knew. Yeah. You forgot. Right? Like, uh, to go back to Richard Bach again, I mean, literally a Richard Bach quote is, I can't tell you anything that you didn't already know. Yep. I can help you remember it. Right? And that's the deal, right? Like, we forgot. We all went off into a dream, you know? Not me, anyway. You know, I went off into a dream over 40 years ago, you know, and, and just lived in it, and I forgot. But once you see it again, when you're ready for it, right? When you've gotten to the place for it, you know it when you see it, and you're like, oh, that's right. It comes back easy, because that's actually our true nature, right? That's actually our true nature. That's the true nature of the natural world, right? Look at dogs or cats or whatever. You know, they don't have ego problems. They don't have resentments, you know. You can step on his foot. Two minutes later, everything's fine. You know what I mean? Uh, they they are very present, right? And they don't have expectations about you. Um, so, yeah, it gets easier as you remember. Yeah, as you remember. Beautiful. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of very wise lessons being said here today. Maybe. <laughs> you want to do regular questions? Do you have any more? Well, I guess, um, different, different realm here. Uh, I was on, I was on Reddit earlier. Um, Love it. Front page of the internet. Uh, and so it was, it was, it was, let's deal with, uh, data science in a way. Um, and regulation. <clears throat> okay. So it was a conversation. It was, it was, a, it was a post about an article or a book that had been written about, uh, Facebook and how best to deal with this problem that has become Facebook. Uh, and they were the, 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 the proposition of this book, not having read it, uh, was to create a fiduciary that would create, that would handle the data that uh, would otherwise have be in sole possession of Facebook with them having the complete control over it so that we could sort of own our own personal data in a way that uh, we don't currently. Um, and the top comment was about how this is a trick that this as well as like I guess a documentary just came out on Netflix and there, there's all this propaganda going on and, and, and even Mark Zuckerberg is a part of it when he gave congressional hearings being like yeah like you know if you want to regulate it I can help you write those laws and that it, what it's really doing is is trying to convince the population that what's best is to create all these government regulations and with the but the real purpose of that is to make it too difficult to create a competing entity to Facebook, right? Uh, which I think happens in a lot of sectors. It does. Um, you know, one of my favorites is like the car industry. Like you need to spend millions and millions of dollars to pass safety tests in order yeah. to create a car. This is what we like to call the Rockefeller method. Yeah. This um, this is one of his many little little. It's sneaky. It's sneaky because it's like, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, our face value sounds like a great idea. Like, you know, yeah. we'll own our data again. Right. You know, like, right. unfortunately, you know, the government would probably wind up selling that 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 license to do the fiduciary to Google and Facebook. Right. <laughs> Look, so there there's a, a report done by uh, a study, I should say, done by the Economist, and this is quite old, right? I mean, this is probably um, 2008 to 2010. I don't remember exactly when it came out, um, and they did this huge survey of the average rate of return on different types of investment globally, right? And by, <clears throat> by like an order of magnitude, 
by far the most profitable investment in all of the world is lobbying the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. It has an average return of 2,000%. Wow. So lobbying the U.S. government is the grass is the best return investment you can make in the world. Oh. So, so we're fucked. <laughs> pretty much exp- I, here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Why do you say that? Because nothing does. Right? And I'll explain. Right? <laughs> so, yep, Facebook gets your data. The government gets your data. Okay? So you have a couple of choices there. Right? You can just not engage with it and then move on. So you can not engage with it and stop thinking about it, go forward, and then it'll never bother you again. Or you can engage with it and then stop thinking about it and move on. It'll never bother you again. Or you can just not even think about engaging with it and just don't think about it and then move on and it'll never bother you again. So if there's action to be taken about your thoughts and feelings towards data governance today, do them. If there's an issue on the ballot, read the blue book, vote, and then put it away. That's my personal advice about all of these things. As someone who is deeply steeped in this world, right? In this in this world of data, especially in healthcare, I have personally been moving healthcare data internationally for 15 years, right? In various one way or another, right? And I'm quite steeped in 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 how these businesses work, how the regular how the regulatory aspects affect the business aspects, affect the population health aspects. I'm not a uh, you know, a deep mind expert in any of those particular areas, but I've worked across them enough that I believe that I understand data governance and the consequences of it uh, socially and and economically fairly well. And I'm going to say that these are vast and labyrinthian structures working in a geopolitical environment, which is well beyond the influence and capacity of individuals and even individual governments such that if there's action that you can take that aligns with your thoughts and feelings on it today, do it and then stop thinking about it because you can't control it, right? You can't control anything. It's actually my advice about everything, Mm -hmm. right? So yeah, what if Facebook turns the world into an Orwellian nightmare? Well, what if they do? (laughs) So what? Honestly, when it comes down to it, so what if they do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do different today? Yep. Right? If there's nothing, then move on. Right? I love this. That's well, personal guess, advice. Yeah? <laughs> I guess the problem, though, is is then it becomes what if there is something to be done? And then what obligation do you have to do it? Do it today. So if there's something you can do right now, right? Read, isn't, there, read isn't, an article. isn't there always something to be done? I mean, whether even if that thing has a very minimal impact, like there's still something. I mean, even if even if we can do something that has a very minimal impact into stopping a dystopian future, it still seems like a worthwhile effort, even well, if that thing. What's is, the track record of like actually doing that? I feel like. Well, my, I mean, what should it be? If you're saying the if main you're thing saying, is like figuring you know, out priorities. Am I ever going to do something about and it? And then move on versus you know become active, get your boots on the ground in, in front of your senators. Maybe like, that's your piece. But for the overwhelming majority of people, that is not their piece, and they spend a lot of time sitting there feeling like shit because they're not doing those things, <laughs> and that's dumb. 
or they spend a lot of time patting themselves on the back that they're able to go to a dinner party and have this conversation. Yeah, I posted thoughts and prayers hashtag 500 times. Yep. You know, okay, right? Whatever, right? Do what makes you happy, right? I'm not judging you for doing that, right? But like, I think a lot of people... Does it make anybody happy? If they didn't like it, they wouldn't do it. I don't know if it makes them happy, but they like it. (laughs) So do what you like. Fair enough. I don't care. Uh, but, But for the vast majority of us, that level of activism and involvement actually isn't our piece. It truly isn't, right? Because we don't understand or we don't actually care that much or we have to live our lives or whatever reason, it doesn't matter. They're all good. They're all equally good reasons for why we do or do not do whatever it is that we do or do not do, right? I think the danger in dwelling on things like this that are so absolutely beyond our control and our understanding is it's an opportunity to not be here, to make yourself feel bad. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity to suffer over something that really doesn't matter, right? And so I I know I'm kind of straddling a more personal, psychological, spiritual sort of line of thinking and maybe more practical, like what do I actually think about lobbying and, and, and human health data or whatever, but they're the same really. Like that's how you have to live your life, right? Or that's how I choose to live my life, right? Is I allow one of those sets to to guide me from to guide me to guide me into a method of operating in the other in which I do not suffer, right? So like, you know, when when I first came out of the place, you know, Asia or you know the great analogy of like it's easy to be a monk in a cave, mm. right? But then you have to come down from the cave. You don't have to, right? But you probably want to come down from the cave and like go to the market sometimes, right? We need to live in the world that we want to live in because I like movies and lattes and talking Mm. to people and traveling and shit like that, right? And I I can't do those things when I'm, you know, in some meditation cave somewhere, right? So I don't want to live in a meditation cave my whole life. But there is a way to bring those things down with you such that you can operate in the real world and pay insurance and go to school and have a job and raise your kids and vote against Mark Zuckerberg, right? Without suffering over it, right? And that, that's kind of the point that I'm making there, right? If there's something that you want to do that you can do right now, then do it, right? But then don't obsess on it, right? It's the obsessing or the thinking about it, right? Like we're sitting here, it's fairly beautiful. The air's a bit smoky, but it's fairly beautiful. There's all kinds of exotic birds floating around. That's one of my soy dogs. Uh, like, this is pretty cool right here, right? And we could lose this utterly by getting ourselves worked up about Facebook getting better at selling me, you know, ads, right? Facebook getting better at selling me running shoes or whatever it is they're trying to do today. Who cares, right? Or Trump ads or whatever it is that they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, but I guess right? the, the fear becomes, though. And See? I, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But like, you know, I, I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with Facebook. I don't think that Facebook's the problem. I think that that but I think the problem's much bigger and much more darker and much more scary. Um, you know, I think the Facebook's great. I think the way people use it can be to their own detriment, sure. But like, you know, it offers you this free service, which is kind of great and connects you. It's a tool. It's pretty brilliant. And then the the way that it makes its money by doing that is by offering you another very valuable service, which is connecting you to products that you might like. And this globalized. Well, world look, if somebody's so giving products. you something for free, you are the product. 
And that's but I'm but I'm, that's what I'm saying is I'm yeah. Yeah, I even get a benefit yeah. out of being the product sure. because I don't you know if, if you want to tell me some cool toy that I might enjoy I might actually want to buy it. Sure, that's fantastic. This is great. The problem is is we've and I I, I believe that it's probably fairly well orchestrated by something that we have such an undereducated population now in the states that you can't tell the difference between a news a, a you know valid well researched unbiased news article and somebody trying to convince you that this right you know i mean but even down to even just the complex regulations like that's one thing but even down to like being able to tell just some crazy neo-nazi versus like a rational human being like and that's scary because at some point that might turn to us no longer having these beautiful places to retreat to and they might but it's not worth sure might what are you gonna do about it right now? Yeah. Nothing. So stop thinking about it. That's my personal advice. Yeah, yeah? I mean, it's something not, we've been struggling with. Like, you. Uh, yeah, you know, in, in the states, when I was, you know, we had we have an obligation to read the news and to to be an informed citizen. When we came to Thailand, I stopped reading the news. Um, it took me a little bit. It was a little tough. And boy, did I feel better afterwards. Is something that I still struggle with, especially with like Reddit, where news kind of creeps in every now and then, and that's not a great place to get. Was there, news was there any other consequence other than you feeling better? No. Yeah. No. Interesting. No. Yet it's still something he goes back to, and, and it then is. he likes because to rinse I, and repeat, realize how it makes him feel terrible, and then he stops, and he's like, "Wow, I feel so much better." Yeah. <laughs> it sucks you in. You know, because I mean, because like you know, because I, I can rationalize it by going to like the the Holocaust quote of like you know. When nobody, I'm gonna really butcher this and paraphrase it, but like you know, when nobody did anything, then yeah, yeah. All it takes for evil to win is that good men do nothing. Yeah, yeah. and like I'm not advocating doing nothing. I'm advocating doing, doing something to do now, yes. and then stop thinking about it. Yes. Right. So this is clearly a very wonderful, wonderful. This is a favorite go-to weapon of your parasite, right? Is how much of Thailand has it been able to rob you of through this? Hi. A decent amount, probably more than I realize. Yeah. Parasite is a master chess player. Master chess player. Set you up weeks and months in advance with expectations and little booby traps and mind loops and all kinds of tricky shit. We all fall for it. You know? Is this do? Is this like the things you say? at a dinner party like especially when you're in the states and people are trying to engage in politics do you respond by saying what can we what can you do right now yeah that's awesome that feels appropriate yeah (gasps) or you know i think the one that probably gets most reaction is when i say you know they're they're gonna xyz is gonna abc and i go so what if they do yeah so what if they do it doesn't matter it truly doesn't matter and that's a tough pill to hear everybody actually knows it's true actually you all know that's true. You know that's true for a fact. You know with every fiber of your being that nothing matters. Accepting that is a whole another ball of wax. And that's a tough one. Yeah? And it's, that's not, that's not uh, chapter one material. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you got to work up to accepting that one. Right? So I, that, that one I probably say a lot less these days than when I first came back. Right? Yeah. It's hard even for me right now. But when we're bombing children in Syria. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> this is one of the main things I'm, I'm I'm nervous about moving back to the states. It's just like that the quality of conversation is going to go down well, so much. America is a huge place with 
hundreds of millions of people. <laughs> Trust me, there are, there, there are people you're going to enjoy talking to. And again, it's your choice, right? Like, have a conversation about something that will be enjoyable, right? Like, you don't have to go in with this expectation, right? That like, if we don't have, you know, this enlightened religious experience of a conversation, then it was shit. Yeah. That falls right back to if I'm not, you know, if I don't sing like Adele, I shouldn't sing. Or if I'm not mm -hmm. Michael Jordan, then I shouldn't play basketball. Like, what's that, right? That's just robbing yourself of something that could be cool in advance. So you're already setting yourself up, right? That's the parasite, the master chess player, laying a booby trap for you so that months from now, when you actually meet somebody who you could have a cool connection with, the booby trap is there. <laughs> right already robbed you of it right already put that little trap in place tricky tricky bastard <laughs> well, we'd really like to thank you for taking the time yeah thank you guys i appreciate all it. of it our conversations again yeah yeah you're, you're right. such a wonderful delight to talk to thank you so like. you guys and congratulations again on uh on your lives <laughs> thank nice you congratulations done. on your life yeah. too. Yeah. nicely <laughs> done nicely done <laughs> work in progress getting better all the time always yeah all right Okay. Thank you. Thank you.